And Father, as we look in your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would be showing to each one of us those things you mean us to hear and see and understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I was trying to get off I-70 onto Topeka Boulevard, and if you know they've done some work that way, the streets aren't quite the way they used to be. You can't get onto Topeka Boulevard the way you could in the past. So I came up, I don't know, another street, and it said road closed. Well, I know better than that the road is closed, so I drive past that road sign and barrier to the next one that says, you know, detour ahead. And I know that I can get onto Topeka Boulevard if I just keep going past these fallacious signs, right? So I get up to Topeka Boulevard and the barriers are all the way across the street, and now I believe the signs. The road is closed, <laughs> right? No one else here has ever done this, I know. Yeah, right. You see those people who go by, then they turn it around and they're coming back. 17th Street, going to the malls the same way. I keep thinking, surely that thing's open by now, right? Nope, wrong. Yep, wrong. I don't know if you remember in uh, the movie The Wizard of Oz, there's the scene when they're making it to the witch's castle, and there are these signs that say, turn back, you know, stop. And they're reading the signs, but they're not sure, and they get to the last one, and it says, this means you. You know, do the signs really apply? Do they really mean what they say they do? That's kind of the question I'm talking about this morning. And we're talking about signs, signposts, witnesses, testimony this morning in John 5. The key verse, we're going to be in verses 31 through 40. And as we read this passage and as we look at some things, ask yourself, how much do I need to believe? When can I really believe a sign? How many signs do I need? How many roadblocks? How many witnesses? How many testaments, if you will? And also, a thought that's helped me as I thought through this passage is to imagine yourself in a courtroom. And Jesus is marching in front of us or parading in front of us a set of witnesses to make his case, as it were. That's the context. That's the theme of John 5, verses 31 through 40. And if you remember, most of John 5 is Jesus interacting with the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders. And he's explaining why it's okay if he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he's made a claim earlier that he is equal with God, that you're to value him as you value the Father. And so we're continuing in that same vein here at verse 31 this morning. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. But the witness which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that... You may be saved. He, John, John the Baptist, was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he is borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Excuse me. You search the scriptures, 
because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. This passage is all about signs or signposts or witnesses or testaments, testimony. Uh, In this passage, in these verses, 31 through 40, the Greek word, we've talked about this before, martyr, the Greek term martyr is used 11 times, 11 times in these few verses, and it's translated as either witness or testify or a variation of those. Jesus is talking about testimony. Remember that to martyr is to bear witness, is to provide testimony to something. Now, before we get into the specific testimony or witnesses that Jesus is going to march before the Jews, look at verse 31. He says something that's a little confusing on the surface. He says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness of myself, my testimony is not true. What in the world does he mean? My testimony, Jesus who can't lie, my testimony is not true. He does not mean that he is telling a falsehood. He does not mean that he is telling a lie. He's simply acknowledging what every good Jew in his day knew, which was the testimony of one person is not adequate to establish a thing as true. He says later in John's Gospel again, he says, even if I'm the only one who would bear witness, my testimony is true. What I say is truth. But here he's acknowledging, hey, I'm not going to ask you to take my word alone as evidence for my claim to deity. Because according to the law of Moses, remember, this wouldn't be adequate. And Jesus is simply acknowledging this. Listen to what Jesus said in Deuteronomy 19.15 through Moses when Moses was given the law on Sinai. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity, or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Deuteronomy 17.6, regarding the death penalty, says the same thing. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This just makes sense, doesn't it? Can you imagine a society in which all I have to do is accuse someone of something and I can take their land, I can have them put to death, etc. It would be capricious, right? You wouldn't know who to believe and who wouldn't, who you couldn't believe. So in the law, God had said, you don't have to take the word of one person. I don't want you to. This is in matters of court, legal issues, or death penalty issues. And there God had said, you establish the truth of a matter by multiple witnesses. And God required the minimum two or three. So Jesus is acknowledging that here. He says, I'm not going to ask you to believe me on my own testimony. I'm going to follow the law, and I'm going to provide two or three witnesses. By the way, this is why at Jesus' mock or sham trial, this is why the Pharisees march the false witnesses forward. They're trying to comply with Deuteronomy. You know, the problem is these guys are lying, so their testimony doesn't line up. But that was the beauty of the law of Moses and this requirement, right? It's that if something is true, it should be verifiable by more than one person. This is also the reason why in Matthew 18, Jesus said, talking about the church age, which we live in, he said that if your brother sins, go and reprove him. One person going to another, reproving him, calling him back to righteousness. He says, but if that doesn't happen, if he doesn't listen to you, 
Take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. It's the same principle, exactly the same principle. So God had said in the law, <clears throat> if you need to validate a thing as so, you're not to do so on the testimony of one person. There should be multiple witnesses, the testimony of at least two or three to verify a thing as so. And so Jesus is nodding to that, even though Jesus couldn't lie, and they should be able to take his word, but he's going to provide his own witnesses. Now, God had said that it only takes two or three to establish a thing as true. In this passage, Jesus is going to march not two or three, but four witnesses forward. And in fact, in the larger context through the end of chapter 5, and we're not taking this because I want to give some time today to one element of the passage and some time next week to the other element. But if you take this passage in its entirety, he actually marches five witnesses forward. So on one hand, God says, if you want to establish a thing as true, you need to have two or three witnesses, two or three signposts, as it were. Jesus says, I'll go better than that. I'm going to give you five. And he says this because, verse 34 is the key to this passage. He says he's doing this for their sake so that they'll come to him and believe. They'll come to him and get life. The five witnesses are, these are the witnesses Jesus is going to put on the witness stand, as it were, in this courtroom to establish the legitimacy of his claims as God the Son and Son of God. They are, one, the Father, he mentions that in verse 32 and verse 37, and we're going to come back and look at each of these separately. John the Baptist is the second witness, verse 33. The works or the miracles that Jesus performs, he mentions at verse 36. The scriptures at verse 39, and then Moses, which we will not look at today, but that's at verse 46. The Father. Jesus says in John 5, 32, there's another one, not himself, but there's another one who bears witness of me, and I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. He's inferring the Father, and then in verse 37 he says, the Father who sent me, he has borne witness of me. So the first witness... Jesus marches into the courtroom for the Jews and for us to believe in his identity is his father. Now, on one hand, it's a little unclear when Jesus says, my father bears me witness, what exactly does he mean? What all does that encompass? And frankly, this is a little ambiguous at some level. But let me give you two things that I know for sure he could be referring to quite clear in each case. The first one is in Matthew 3, and this is at Jesus' baptism. Now remember, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's a nobody from nowhere up in the sticks in Galilee when he comes down to his baptism. And here in Matthew 3, verses 13 and then up through verse 17, Jesus arrived at the Jordan to be baptized, and after being baptized, he went up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is a very public gathering. There are lots of folks around John at the River Jordan for his baptism. Lots of people. And as soon as Jesus comes up, a sign, a visible sign comes down, this image of a dove, the Spirit resting above Jesus. But then this voice booms out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son. 
this was as public as it gets. And if nothing else had happened, if the Father hadn't testified in any other way, at the commission of Jesus' public ministry on earth, the Father's voice booms from heaven and claims Jesus and says, this is the one, this is the one, this is my son. There's a very similar passage in Matthew 17. This is certainly less public. But if you remember, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain with him. And while they're there, Jesus is transformed before their eyes. He takes on what I assume to be his heavenly glory. He's shining. He's radiant with light. He appears to be white, like looking into a light. And as he takes on this appearance, Moses and Elijah appear with him. And Peter especially is impressed. This is, this is funny, isn't it, what we're impressed with? Here's Jesus in his glory. And Peter sees Moses and Elijah, you know, no doubt. These are two of his heroes. You know, if you're a baseball fan, you see, I don't know, Babe Ruth or somebody or whatever. Whoever your heroes might be. Well, Peter sees Moses and Elijah. And so he says to Jesus, hey, this is cool, Lord. And hey, we'll make some tents, you know. And Moses and Elijah can hang around with us for a while. And as he's still speaking, Matthew 17, 5, it says a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Almost the same thing, almost verbatim, the same thing spoken at Jesus' baptism. Granted, this is a less public Forum. There's only a few of them, but it's the same thing. It's God the Father audibly speaking from heaven, claiming Jesus as his divine representative. The Father, Jesus says, bears me testimony. The Father is a road sign. He is a witness to my claim of being God the Son and the Son of God. The second witness is John the Baptist. In verse 33, Jesus said, You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Let me just read a couple of verses out of John 1, just to refresh your memory. These are verses we've looked at. John bore witness of Jesus, and he cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. He existed before me. You remember we talked about this earlier. This claim about he existed before me is ludicrous for anyone other than Jesus. You remember John is older than Jesus, right? He's at least six months older. For Jesus to have existence before birth, this is not true of another human. This would only be true of God. John said of Jesus, He pre-exists me even though I'm physically older than, that, than him. He's actually older than me because he existed before his birth. Or John 1.34, I have seen and have borne witness, John says, that this is the Son of God. And then John 1, 36, he looked upon Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, you remember, for John the Baptist, in the culture in which he spoke, uh, kind of two things similar to Jesus. The people loved John the Baptist and they believed he was a prophet sent from God. The Jewish leaders, however, held him a little bit at distance. And do you remember they'd send to him and say, John, who are you? And John would say, well, I'm not the Messiah. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, John said. You remember later Jesus asked the Pharisees, hey, the baptism of John, was that from heaven, from God, or was it from men? See, they don't know what to answer. 
because they didn't follow John. So they're not sure what to say to Jesus. They're going to get themselves into trouble. So for John the Baptist, the nation accepted John as a credible witness because the people believed he was a prophet. The Pharisees, however, weren't quite so sure. They held him at a little bit of a distance. But related, for those who would hear John's testimony, Jesus said, John was like a light and you rejoiced in his light for a while. Or, you know, a passage out of Ezekiel is great. You know, sometimes any of us can hear truth repeatedly and sometimes we think that sounds so neat. Ezekiel said, God said through Ezekiel, you'll be like someone who plays a song. And they'll say, wow, what a nice song but they won't take heed to anything. And John was like that for the Pharisees on one hand. On the other, he was considered a valid witness by many in Israel. So Jesus says, he marches in, his second witness, and he says, for those who will, John the Baptist was also my witness. John said he wasn't the Messiah. He came to give give witness, to bear testimony to the Messiah, to me, Jesus says. He marches in his third witness, witness for the defense or plaintiff, I'm not sure which he would be in this case. He says the works or the miracles, John 5, 36, the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Now, the works are greater than John for two reasons. One, some people didn't believe John. They wrote him off. They didn't believe him. But also, John was one more human. And Jesus says, as valid, on one hand, as John's testimony to me is, I've got better witness. I've got a more credible witness, and that is the very works that God the Father has given me to perform. I think I've mentioned this before, but we've got seven significant miracles in the Gospel of John. Seven is not for no purpose in this Gospel John hangs, as it were, his gospel on seven miracles, seven attesting signs to the validity of Jesus' claim. We've read three of them already. Jesus changed water into wine in John 2. In John 4, do you remember, he healed the sick boy of the, uh, uh, not the synagogue man, but the uh, important man, I can't remember, in Capernaum. Uh, He healed the lame man here at the beginning of chapter 5. He's going to feed a multitude In chapter 6, he's going to walk on water in chapter 6. He's going to give sight to the blind man in John 9. And then he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead in John 11. So this gospel is hung on seven miracles, on seven works, Jesus says, that God the Father had given him. In fact, later in the same gospel, he'll say, the works which no one else did. It's funny, later, you remember the blind man? He said, who's ever heard of a blind man being given his sight back? These things haven't occurred before, he says. They hadn't. This was unique. So Jesus says, better than John's testimony, God the Father has given me miracles to perform so that you'll know I am who I say I am. Now concerning this specific list, there's some importance to the specific miracles Jesus gave and did. And let me read to you out of Matthew 11 briefly. You know, John's witness was clear in John 1 and 2, crystal clear. However, John was a human. He was the greatest 
prophet, Jesus says in the Old Testament, but he was still a man like you and I, and this may be comforting for you as it is for me. What happens to John when he's thrown in prison? He second guesses himself. He wonders, was I right when I saw Jesus coming? Was he really the one or was I wrong? John the Great, John the Baptist doubted in prison and so he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he says in Matthew 11, Are you the expected one, Jesus, or do we search for another? Was I right or was I wrong? And Jesus says this, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Why does Jesus mention these, these specific miracles? There's a reason, and John knows why. Because these were the miracles prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 35 and 61. Listen to Isaiah 35. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you, Isaiah says. And when he comes and brings in judgment against your enemies and saves you, when this happens, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. That's why Jesus quoted Isaiah, because it's affirmation to John, I am the promised one because I'm doing the works God said the promised one would do. And concerning preaching or proclaiming good news to the poor, Isaiah 61, by the way, Jesus read this in Luke 4 when he begins his public ministry back in his hometown of Nazareth, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me Anointed is, uh, Messiah means anointed one. God's anointed, whether king or priest, was anointed with oil. When Jesus quotes this, he, say, he is saying, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one. To bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So concerning the miracles, two things. Jesus says on one hand, I'm doing things that no one else has done and no one else can do. And the things that I'm doing that no one else has done and can do, they were the ones prophesied about the Messiah. God's Savior would come and the lame would leap and the dumb would speak and the deaf would hear and the blind would see. And those who were oppressed, they'd hear good news. And that's why he tells John the Baptist, this is it. These are the works that I do. So you can rest assured, your witness to me was right. I am the Lamb of God. I am the Son of God. And John, the works I do make it sure. The works manifest the legitimacy of my claim. So Jesus says, the Father is my witness. John the Baptist is my witness. The works are my witness. Four, and the last one we'll look at this morning, he says, the Scriptures bear me witness. The scriptures bear me witness. Now, if you've read anything about uh, apologetics or things related to fulfilled prophecy in or related to Jesus, there's multitudes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mention just a few here because if you were a Jew listening to Jesus when this was spoken, lots of prophecies wouldn't have been fulfilled yet. But some were. 
For instance, referring to the Old Testament, Isaiah 7.14 said that the Messiah, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. Jesus had no earthly father. Now in John's gospel, the Jews cast some aspersion on his lineage, on his parenting, because they're not sure who daddy was. But that's for a reason, isn't it? She wasn't married when she became pregnant, Mary, because she had no earthly husband at the time. Jesus had no earthly father. He was truly born of a virgin. And if they wanted to believe, they could. There were others around who knew. Mary hadn't been married. How about Micah 5.2? This is a funny one to me. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. This is funny to me because of this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and it's in Bethlehem that the Messiah was to be born. But as you read John's gospel, they'll say, look, the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, and this guy's from Nazareth. They didn't ask him where he was born. They didn't know he was born in Bethlehem. All they had to do was ask, were you born in Bethlehem? Yes, I was. They knew the Messiah had to come from Bethlehem. And again, if you remember, this is one of the ironies to me, and we'll talk a little bit more about next week. Jesus is about 30 years old. About 30 years old, right? So you remember the, the events that surrounded his birth? There are wise men that come from the east. They go to Jerusalem. The city's in a stir because they say we're looking for the king, the king who's born to the Jews. And then what's Herod do? He sends his soldiers down to what? To kill all the boys, two years old and younger, to make sure that he kills that king. In other words, there were people alive. Maybe there were people standing here when Jesus is talking who were around to have heard these things and known these things. That Herod tried to wipe out a Messiah in Bethlehem 30 years ago, about the time this Jesus character would have been born. And there were wise men, these magi, these wealthy wise men from the east that had come, wow, about the time this guy was born, who said, there's a king born to the Jews. You see what I'm saying? There was evidence. There was testimony. It was all over. Or how about Hosea 11.1? Matthew quotes this for Jesus. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. What do you mean? Well, you remember after Herod sent those guys to kill the Messiah? What did Joseph and Mary do? They took Jesus. They fled for safety to Egypt. And they waited there until an angel came and told Joseph, it's safe, you can go back. And so God says, out of Egypt, I called my son. There's other things like, we can read the genealogies in Matthew or Luke, and they prove what? That Jesus was a descendant through two lines, both Mary and Joseph. Jesus was a descendant, a direct descendant of King David. And the Messiah had to be a direct descendant of King David. So we could go on and on and on related to the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. But he says, the scriptures are my witness also. And in any fashion or avenue that the Pharisees or the Jews wanted to investigate his claims from the Old Testament scriptures, they could do so 
because they would prove true of Jesus. There were things that had to be true of the Messiah, and they were true of him. So the scriptures, he, see, he says, bear him witness. So here's Jesus standing in the court, the public court, as it were, of Judaism, and he says, I'm not going to provide two or three, the minimum number of witnesses. I'm going to provide four, no, five witnesses so that you can believe. Perhaps if it was anything less significant, God could have stopped with two or three witnesses. But you remember at verse 34, Jesus says, I say these things that you may be saved. I say these things that you may be saved. Jesus comes to the earth and he dies for our sins, right? And he says anyone who will believe will be saved. That's what John's gospel is all about. So who will believe? Why would we believe? God the Father makes, if you will, his argument as strong as possible. And he doesn't go with the minimum number of witnesses possible. He maximizes his list of witnesses. And he does so that that there can be no doubt that Jesus is who he said he is. And these witnesses are lined up and they're strung out. It's as if Jesus is beating a dead horse because he wants there to be no question as to his identity. And he wants there to be no question because he says, I'm doing these things so that you may come to me and have life. And you remember God's will for the world. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but I came that you might have life. And he strung out the witnesses so that there can be no doubt in our minds what's true who Jesus is, what he came to do, and that he's adequate as my Savior. He is God the Son. He is the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. So that if we're standing in that court, if we want proof, if we're willing to believe, the evidence is there. It's not just there a little. It's there in spades. It's not the minimum. It's maximized. It's redundant. It's over the top. Interesting, too, though not considered one of the seven major miracles, of course, the last and greatest miracle that Jesus does, which verifies his deity, is his own resurrection. And isn't it interesting? You know, when Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, he says Jesus appeared alive after his resurrection. And how many did he appear to? Over 500. Again, God is just, he says, guys, if you want evidence, I've got evidence. And here it is. And even if every Jew in Jerusalem or Judea had not seen him post-resurrection, more than 500 had. So that if you want to believe, if you're willing to believe, the evidence is there. It is incontrovertible. And it's all there, Jesus says, so that you'll come to me and have life. Now, the obvious application question to ask yourselves this morning, if none other, is, have I believed? Have I come to Christ for life? Have I trusted in Jesus Christ? Have I accepted the testimony of the Father and of the Baptist and of the miracles and of the scriptures and of Moses Or if I turn my back on the clear signposts 
the clear testimony of one reliable witness after another to deny Christ. You see how hard this, this is? God makes it easy to believe and have life. He makes it hard, if you will, to reject it and to embrace death. He makes it easy to believe. Have you believed? Have you come to Christ? Beyond that, let me ask you this. <clears throat> when God speaks to you today, do you listen? When he puts the road close sign in front of you today, do you read it and know that this means you? And let me just, I don't want to go too far with this. God deals with each of us as individuals, but God is alive and he does speak today. And without getting, you don't have to be a mystic or anything else to know God speaks today. If he doesn't, he's lying because he said he sent his spirit so that we would know him. He'd manifest himself to us, make himself real to us. And if God wants to tell you something today, he still can. He still speaks, often through his scripture, most often, I would say, through his scripture. He speaks, and he speaks directly to you. Now, sometimes you and I might ask God for direction. I've done this multiple times. I want God to make it clear. Speak from heaven, just like Matthew 3. Hey, would you boom your voice from heaven and tell me, take door A or, or door B? And you know, sometimes, Pat, he doesn't do that. Sometimes when I want him to speak clearly, he doesn't. And in those circumstances, I understand, Lord, okay, I'm going to seek your will. What does the scripture say about whatever I'm struggling with? I've sought the counsel of others. I've prayed about it. And you haven't given clear guidance. And so I figure I'm good to go. I'm going to make my best decision and trust you're with me in it. And sometimes that's the way it works. And that's fine. Other times, though, God has something specific he wants us to know. And so he tells us. And if you're unsure if God is speaking to you today, then you ask him this, which is what I do. Lord, if this is you, would you confirm this? See, I'm on solid ground when I ask this. Because God says, I'll confirm a thing by two or three witnesses. And I understand, and God knows I understand, that I am quite fallible. And sometimes I want to hear certain things, right? Sometimes I hope God's saying something, and so I realize my heart, it's untrustworthy. So, Lord, if I'm really hearing from you, you verify that to me by two or three witnesses. I was in my quiet time this week, and I felt particularly unburdened. I don't know why. And I read Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And I felt like God was speaking straight to me. And I just, just the opening phrase, God is our refuge. I thought, Lord, if I just got a hold of that, I'd be good to go. God's my refuge. Just like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What else do I need? I could just stop right there. But I read Psalm 46, and I felt like God was speaking right to me. And I thought, well, Lord, this is neat. I'm encouraged. I wonder if you're really speaking to me, though. Or is this just, I'm having a good morning, the coffee's particularly good, the caffeine's kicked in. What is it, Lord? <clears throat> so I get out this devotional book, this uh, religious literature. It sounds really boring, terribly boring title. It's just got this outstandingly deep, great stuff in it. And I open up to the next page that I'm reading, and guess what it is? Psalm 46. And I didn't even know that they had Scripture in it. I thought it was just other authors. Psalm 46. So I read it again. And I said, Lord, I hear you. I hear you. I wasn't sure. You spoke once. You spoke twice. 
I thought maybe it was you, and you verified it because you spoke the same thing a second time. So if you're praying for direction, if you're asking, God, I need to hear from you about a specific thing. If you think he's spoken, but you're not sure, you ask him, Lord, would you verify this for me? Sometimes we know, and I'm not saying we don't tempt God. Um, If you know he's spoken, then do it. I mean, whatever he said, if you know. If you're unsure, though, ask him, Lord, verify it. Help me to make sure this is you. Another thing, though, too, you need to be open. If you are hearing the witness or the testimony or of two or three others to you on things you may not be asking God about, you need to be open that God may be speaking. What I mean is this. <clears throat> I'm at the breakfast table two weeks ago. I'm feeling particularly stressed. But I'm doing a great job of being cool. <clears throat> so I think. And my wife says to me, What's wrong, Mike? Nothing's wrong. What do you mean? And then one of the girls says, Dad, is something wrong? And I'm like, hmm. You see, I thought I was covering up. But I've got two or three people telling me otherwise. So you know what I'm figuring out? I'm not covering it up. I hear you. And sometimes other people will speak into your lives. And I'm telling you, if you're hearing the same thing from two or three witnesses, you need to be open that God is speaking, whether you want to hear it or not. You need to be open. God is willing to confirm a matter through the witness of two or three people. Whatever this is related to, you know, all of us need correction. We need somebody else to tell us, hey, you're blowing it here. Or, hey, you're doing a great job here. Those are things God uses for us. And if you've got two or three people telling you the same thing about, hey, I think you're blowing it here. I think you're making a mistake. Or, you know what, I think God is really using you here. And even though you you don't think this is what God wants for you, I think maybe God does want this for you, then you need to be open that God is confirming a thing. He's speaking to you, and he's doing so by the mouth of two or three witnesses, as he says he will. So be open. Be open to asking God to confirm a matter if you're unsure, and be willing to hear others that God might be speaking through the witness of two or three others if you're hearing the same thing from them. So again, the big thing, the biggest thing, the only thing that matters in the end is Jesus marches the witnesses out so that we can, so that we will believe and have life. And then secondarily and more minor, if you're a little unclear in your own mind about what God wants you to do and you think you're hearing, ask him to give you two or three witnesses and be willing to accept two or three witnesses as God speaking to you to encourage you in something or to stop you in something else. Be willing to assume that that's God if he's verifying the message. Let's pray. Lord, you have made salvation absolutely and abundantly clear. You've provided for it through your own death and resurrection. You've done all the work and you've said all that's left for us is to trust or to believe, or as verse 34 says, to come to you. Lord, it is not for lack of information that we don't believe you or follow you. At times our wills are simply opposed to yours. But Lord, help us to be willing to come to your anointed one, the one to whom the the scriptures bear testimony, 
Lord, the one to whom in the end all heaven and earth will bow and will confess that this is your chosen one. This is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Lord, thanks that we can bow in reverence today and worship your Son and be blessed in the doing. Thanks that we can come to him today and receive life. Thanks that you make it so abundantly clear. And Lord, when we need to hear from you, make it clear when we're confused or when the voices in our own minds are yelling loudly. Confirm these things to us that we need to know and hear and do. And Lord, help us to be open to hearing you through the witness of two or three others as well. Lord, thanks that you have abundantly provided for all our needs, whether that's faith or trust, whether it's for our daily provision. All our hopes, Lord, are in you. Truly, you are our refuge and our strength. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you by entrusting ourselves into the hands of your Beloved Son, in his name we pray, amen.